Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Priest King. Our study on Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. For more information and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. If you missed last week, um, we started a new series on Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted um, Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. It's about the coming Messiah. It was very, very important to the New Testament writers. And so we're going to take some weeks as we work up to Easter to try to look at Psalm 110 and, and, and grasp what the New Testament authors, the early church, grasped. All right, let's pray over the word. Lord, we need you in this time. We call on you, Holy Spirit. We call on you, come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we believe this word, this scripture, this Bible is God-breathed. It's your breath. Lord, we came to encounter it this morning. Help us, Lord, open the, the, the eyes of our hearts to grasp the truth laid out in this scripture. Lord, we didn't come to hear the gifting of a man, the intellect of a man, or the humor of a man. We came to hear the breath of the Holy Spirit challenge us and pierce us and encourage us. You have your way in this time. Every word that's from your heart, let it pierce, let it ring true. We need you, Holy Spirit. We don't take you lightly, Holy Spirit. We don't take you lightly, Holy Spirit. We don't glaze over your ministry. Be present. We call on you today. Be present here. Be present here, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 110. Athanasius against the world was a phrase that um, is used throughout church history. It's the phrase that used to tell the story of the life of Athanasius of Alexandria. We talked some last week about the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. Um, The church at the Council of Nicaea formally articulated orthodox doctrine concerning the deity of Jesus, that Jesus was not a created being, but Jesus was eternally God, co-eternal and co-equal. Athanasius was a key player in that event. It was his writing and his teaching that really built the foundation of the orthodox argument. Athanasius would eventually become bishop of Alexandria, although he'd be exiled on like five different occasions. And the the church, they they would put a new bishop over Alexandria, but no one would accept him as bishop. They would just wait for Athanasius to come back. It said that um, Alexander of Alexandria, that's annoying to say, but Alexander of Alexandria was the bishop when Athanasius was a child, his predecessor. And it said that Alexander, the sitting bishop, he found that some young boys were playing in the river and baptizing one another. Um, And so Alexander called the young boys to him and began to question them. And Alexander, the bishop, was so impressed with the young boy's ability to articulate the gospel and what was happening that uh, Alexander, the bishop, declared the baptism valid. He said that baptism was legitimate, baptized by a young boy. The young boy doing the baptisms was Athanasius. And from that day forward, Alexander of Alexandria, the bishop, began to mentor and to disciple Athanasius, took him under his wing. 
Now, Athanasius is known for going head to head with Arius. Arius is the heretic who the doctrine, um, the, the false doctrine, Arianism is named after. Arianism teaches that Jesus is not eternally God, but that Jesus is a created being. And it's, it's actually very similar to what Jehovah's Witness teach today. And so that doctrine is named after Arius, and Arius is kind of Athanasius' chief opponent. Now, Constantine came to Christianity around the year 312 A.D. Christianity up to that point had been outlawed and was not legal. And so the Christian church was not able to come together and hold any sort of council to gather and form any sort of doctrine. It was totally outlawed. They were persecuted, many burned at the stake, many thrown to lions. And so it's not that the church hadn't decided what was orthodox doctrine yet, but the church hadn't had the um, opportunity to come together and open and have a meeting and and create some unity surrounding what is orthodox doctrine, particularly who is the person of Jesus. Now, Arianism had a little bit of traction, and Constantine saw that as a threat to the unity of the, of the empire. And so Constantine declared that Arius and, and, and essentially Athanasius were going to come together before the bishops of the land, and they were going to, of the empire, and they were going to work out this doctrine concerning the person of Jesus. Again, up to this point, Christianity had been illegal. Some say that, some in church history say that when the bishops, this is the first time the bishops have ever gathered. And when they gather in Nicaea, they say it was a strange thing to watch these bishops from all over the land. Um, some in church history said they, they hobbled because they had been beaten so much for their faith. That some were greatly deformed and scarred. That some had eyes that were deformed from the cruelty that it, they've experienced for their faith. And so in 325 AD, this group of up to, some say it was as many as 320 um, bishops, they all hobbled together into Nicaea to meet together for the first time. They're broken, bruised, and beaten. They say it was a strange sight. The first legal open, open gathering of the church. The first time it was known. Now Athanasius at the time of the council was in his late 20s. Some say he was 27. He was not a, a bishop. Athanasius at the time of the council was a deacon. An assistant still to Alexander. Yet Athanasius would be the chief arguer for the scriptural truth that Jesus is fully God. His enemies often referred to him as the black dwarf because he was um, a little man, a little dark-skinned man from Egypt, um, would come in arguing 27. He, he wrote a book at the age of 21 called On the Incarnation. And that book that he wrote at the age of 21 became the chief document, um, the, the, the foundation for the arguments concerning the deity of Jesus. At the age of 21, Arius the heretic was 40 years his senior, was in his 60s. Um, at this argument. So if you can imagine um, this, this little dark-skinned Egyptian man coming to argue the truth of Christ's deity. He's only 27 at this time and he's arguing theology and doctrine that he articulated at the age of 21. And he's arguing against a man who's 40 years his senior and has been in ministry for most of his adult life. Now you would say that, 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 that this is a bit of an odd matching, right? But Arius reasoned, he, he built all of his arguments from Greek philosophy. And many said that he was actually an articulate um, defender of his position. Arius reasoned with, with philosophy. And Athanasius was educated in philosophy. Most were in that time. And Athanasius was educated in the languages like many were. But from Athanasius' youth, the time he was baptizing little boys, Alexander 
focused Athanasius's um, development intellectually only on the scriptures. And so he learned the other things that other people would learn. But Athanasius, from the time he was a boy, had deeply meditated on the word of God. He submerged himself in the scripture. He was drowned in the Bible. Athanasius loved to go to the monastic movement in the deserts of Egypt. And he would sit with the monks there and just read the scripture and just meditate on the scripture. And so this 27-year-old comes and stands before a man in his 60s who's been in ministry of all of his life, arguing with great intellect and logic and philosophy. And this 27-year-old argues a paper that he had written at the age 21. And it's clear and articulate and decisive scriptural truth because he wasn't arguing with the reasoning of man, but he was arguing with deep meditation on the word of God. Now, all of the bishops, almost all of the bishops, there were two who disagreed with um, Athanasius, one being Arius, the other being his friend. And sometimes they say there was one more. But the other 300 all agree with Athanasius that Jesus is fully a God. That is what the Bible teaches. That is orthodox doctrine. And so Arius is declared a heretic and driven out. But the fight didn't stop there because Arius um, had had an axe to grind and Arius was a bit of a marketer. Arius wrote songs, songs that said Jesus is like God, not God, but created. And Arius taught these songs to people all over the land. And, and for a moment, it really felt like Arianism was taking over modern Christianity. Many of the bishops and the fathers who were orthodox in their theology and believed Jesus to be fully God, they were tired of fighting and they, they were just whatever. Let's quit fighting. Let's find common ground. But Arius didn't quit. He was he was taking over taken over the, the landscape with his false doctrine. And there was a moment in church history that felt really bleak. But Athanasius kept fighting and kept arguing and kept writing. He'd be banned and he'd come back full of the spirit and with fresh argumentation and clear doctrine. And Athanasius um, just just kept presenting scriptural truth. And he just didn't quit. He didn't bow his knee to the modern mainstream pressure. But he belonged fully to Jesus and the truth of the scripture. And so he just kept articulating it and kept arguing. At one point, they try to have they try to have Athanasius executed on the charge that he had murdered another priest. The problem is that the other priest was just hidden in some cave um, intentionally to try to deceive um, the courtroom about Athanasius. Even when the other priest was presented and everyone says, look, the man's not even dead. Of course, Athanasius isn't a murderer. They still catch Athanasius on some other little charge and have him driven out again. But he doesn't quit because his life doesn't belong to him. C.S. Lewis picked up Athanasius on the incarnation in his early years. And C.S. Lewis said it was very quickly that he realized that he was reading a masterpiece. Athanasius lived with sincerity, loved the sick and the poor. Wrote a biography on Antony, one of those monks in the monastic movement in southern Egypt. Um, a biography about Antony's selflessness, his service to the poor, his, his service to the widow and the orphan. And that biography was one of the things that led St. Augustine a hundred years or so later to give his life to the Lord. One author says, the greatest man of his age and one of the greatest religious leaders of any age, Athanasius of Alexandria, rendered services to the church of value which scarcely can be exaggerated. For he had defended the faith against overwhelming odds and emerged triumphant. And so I spent some time this week piddling through the 21-year-olds on the incarnation. And the doctrine is clear, it's articulate. And a 21-year-old doesn't write like that without really meditating on the word of God deeply. And a man doesn't live faithfully to the gospel in the face 
of, of, of a society that's going completely astray. A man doesn't live faithful to the word of truth without meditating deeply on the gospel and on scriptural truth. Athanasius against the world because Athanasius was girded up by truth and was driven by the true gospel narrative. And when you've been really moved by the story of the gospel, offering yourself freely to Jesus is the only logical outworking of that gospel. Athanasius couldn't let the idea pass that Jesus was just a created being because because The scriptural presentation is that Jesus is the word of God from eternity past by which all things was created. Jesus is eternal forever. He is one with God. And so it wasn't just a created being who became man. That wouldn't be such a step down. God himself became man. And Athanasius wrote thoroughly on this idea, fleshed it all out. It was God who put on flesh. It was God who healed the sick. It was God who sat down with a prostitute, dignified her with conversation, honored her, redeemed her, allowed her to have position in the kingdom. That was God who did that, not a mere created being. The limitless God became confined in flesh. The perfect put on bone and marrow out of a deep desire to restore you and to restore me. It was God who went to the cross of Calvary. God, the creator of all, the perfect, holy, just God who allowed men, his creations, to judge him and spit in his face. It was God who endured that cruel death for you. Not a mere creation. God himself endured for you. He was declared guilty by corrupt leaders who he created. He was condemned by unjust men. God did that for you. And the truth that God embraced humiliation, that God was condemned, that God was crucified because he wanted me, he wanted redemption, he wanted restoration in the earth. That truth drove Athanasius to gladly serve Jesus even when everyone else seemed to be running astray. He gave himself fully, willingly, with joy and gladness to the gospel of Jesus. The gospel produced in him abandonment to all else. And so today as we look at Psalm 110 again, and we're going to focus today on verse 2 and 3, we're going to kind of zone in on this line in which David writes, the Messiah's people will offer themselves freely on the day of his power. They will offer themselves freely, not begrudgingly. They do not offer themselves out of fear of punishment. They do not come cowering in submission, not out of compulsion or some sense of religious duty. They offer themselves freely in the day of his power. Jesus' people offer themselves freely, gladly, with joy. Let's read the psalm. We're going to read the entirety of Psalm 110 again. And again, we're going to work in verses 2 to 3 today. You guys okay with me so far? I don't care if you ain't because I came to talk about some things. Psalm 110, verse 1 through 7. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. A bit of context, just to remind you of where we went last week. This psalm is classified as a royal psalm. Theologians, Luther, Calvin, they they call it a a coronation psalm. This psalm is about the day which Jesus sat down at the right hand of God and received his full dominion, was crowned king of heaven and of earth. The New Testament authors considered this psalm to be totally about Jesus. They quoted it nonstop. Jesus quoted it himself. Paul quoted it on multiple occasions. Peter quoted it. The author of Hebrews quoted it. It's all through the New Testament. It's the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. It's about the Messiah, about Jesus. Peter declared on the day of Pentecost that this passage is about Jesus, what happened after Jesus' ascension. After Jesus returned to heaven, Peter said, in that moment, God declared, Yahweh declared to the Son, you sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We said that Jesus is the preferred king. He is the uniquely chosen Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He is God resurrected and ascended and seated at the right hand of God. He is king of heaven and earth fully. And today we'll move to verse 2 to 3. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So first, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord, again, that first Lord is the, is the Tetragrammaton, the divine name Yahweh. Yahweh sends forth from Zion the scepter of the Messiah. What is meant by his mighty scepter? What is it that the Lord sends forth from Zion? Some translations, older translations in particular, a lot of translations translate that phrase. Um, the Lord sends forth the rod of your strength. Yahweh sends from Zion the rod of Messiah's strength. Commentators suggest that the rod of Messiah's strength is the word of God, his holy word. Lang says, speaking of the scepter, it is the emblem of majesty. The scepter that is extended from the hand of Messiah over the nations is an emblem of his majesty. It's a token, a sign of his beauty, of his worth, of his majesty. And it's stretched forth over the nations to exercise his dominion. God will send forth from Zion, the emblem of Messiah's majesty, and it will expand Messiah's dominion. How is the majesty of Jesus declared? The dominion of his kingdom expanded. Matthew Henry, the Puritan theologian, wrote, By the rod of his strength, or his strong rod, is meant his everlasting gospel and the power of the Holy Ghost going along with it. I think the idea comes together in a cohesive manner. Yahweh is sending from Zion the gospel of Messiah in the power of the Spirit. That gospel would declare to the nations His majesty, His beauty, and His worth. And that gospel will cause the nations to come under Messiah's dominion. Notice that the scepter comes from Zion. Zion is the, the mount which Jerusalem is built on. It's, it's Jerusalem. 
comes from the city of David. Zion, the, the scepter will be extended from David's city. But David's dominion only stretched over Israel, the promised land. Messiah's dominion will be sent forth to the nations, will be extended even in the midst of his enemies. Many came to see the splendor of Solomon's kingdom. Many came to hear his wisdom, to see the gold and the silver and the beauty of the architecture. Many came to witness Solomon. Many will come to Messiah not just to witness his splendor, his majesty, the beauty of his creation, the wonder of his gospel. The nations will come to see Messiah and they will come to bow before Messiah. They will come to submit themselves to his lordship. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Messiah's majesty and dominion will flourish even in regions of great darkness. Even in, in, in nations where it seems that they belong fully to idols. The majesty and the gospel of Messiah will be declared in those regions of his enemies. And even there his dominion will be spread. Even his enemies will come to bow under the authority of King Jesus. When they recognize his majesty in the proclamation of the gospel. So what do we glean from this first line? That the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit is the means by which the beauty of Jesus is revealed to the nations. And even those who were opposed to him, even the land of his enemies, even idolaters and idol worshipers, even they will come to bow before Jesus and declare him beautiful. I want you to know this morning that we do not mature beyond the simple gospel. There are times in church history and particularly in our culture where some come um, and they seem to declare that they have matured beyond the simple gospel, the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, ascending of the spirit. And they come to declare the hidden and mysterious things, the deep things of scripture. I want you to know this morning that the gospel of Jesus is the deep thing of scripture. Paul says, I preach nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. I know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. I want to tell you this morning that the mature know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. And I've come to proclaim nothing to you this morning other than the life, death, and resurrection of our King Jesus. And I will not go down the road of those spiritually mysterious ones who proclaim the deep things of Scripture. Oh, the blood of Jesus is the deep thing of Scripture, friend. And when the church gets away from the simple gospel, they've got away from holding out the scepter of Jesus over the nations. For Athanasius, the deep things were this, that God became man. With Paul, Christ and Christ crucified. Paul said it's foolishness. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Oh, we may tickle ears if we go down a road trying to draw out some things out of lineage or the pronunciation of names and get on this thing of deeper things. But the the truth of Scripture is that the gospel seems foolish to those who are perishing. But by God, it's the power of God for redemption to the nations. Get out of here with a spiritual mumbo jumbo. Christ and Christ crucified. Next, we learn from that line that the gospel is to begin in Jerusalem, but it is to be stretched out over all nations. Therefore, the kingdom will transcend nationality and culture. 
It's a diverse kingdom. It's filled with all types of people and exists in all regions. Yet it's a unified kingdom and that it comes under the dominion of this single king. Is the gospel for the Jew alone? Of course not. It starts in Zion, but it's extended out. Is the gospel for the Gentile alone? Of course not. It starts in Zion. Is the gospel for the white man? No. Emphatically, the gospel is not for the white man. Is the gospel for the black man? No. Is it for the Asian man? No. Is it for the Hispanic man? No. The gospel is Jesus' gospel, and it is to all people, to all of his creation. You and I do not have a corner market on the gospel or true worship of Jesus. We come together, a diverse yet unified body, in that we are all conquered by the beauty and majesty of Jesus. We are free to express our worship and praise in different cultural settings, ethnic settings, but we are unified in the truth that Jesus is king. We are diverse people. We're unified in this. We have seen the majesty of Jesus in the gospel and have encountered the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've come to gladly surrender to him. Next, I want to consider this line for a moment. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments. This line is so packed with theological truth, I think we could talk about it for hours, which I know you're desperate to do. First, your people. Messiah has a people. Where did he get these people? He bought them. Messiah purchased for himself a people at the cross of Calvary. He redeemed that means that he purchased, he, he redeemed from the grip of death, sin, and hell. His blood paid a price for a people. The transaction is complete, it's, vinyl, it's finalized, the price has been paid, Messiah has purchased the nations, Messiah has a people, Jesus has a people. The people of Messiah are dressed in holy garments. We whose righteous works or our best efforts is dirty rags before God. That you you know that 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 Hebrew originally there. Um, the, the the filthy rag is a reference to a rag that a woman used in her menstrual cycle. And God says that your righteousness is like that to Him. That means that the good works that you're proud of, your best days where you pat yourself on the back and you say, "By God, I am spiritual. I feel very good about myself." Even those days, God says, are filthy before him. There are none who are righteous. No one's righteous. None who seek God. They're, they're, from the days of their youth, God said in Genesis, from the days of their youth, their hearts are set on iniquity, are set on evil. There are none righteous. Who is righteous, the scripture says. Emphatically, the answer is none, no one. Yet now Messiah's people are clothed in holy garments. How is it that rebellious Humanity has now become Messiah's people dressed in holy garments because the blood spilled for you not only bought you, but it washed you. It possesses cleansing power. Isaiah said in chapter 1, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be made white as snow. Though as crimson, they shall become like wool. You are guilty and rebellious, yet now in this text, you are declared belonging to Messiah and cleansed in holy garments. None of us are righteous. If you claim to be righteous, you're the worst kind of self-righteous and you're obnoxious to everybody, okay? Nobody's righteous. 
Our garments are filthy and stained. You were dressed in filth. Jesus is dressed in holy, pure, white robes. On the day of his crucifixion, he took off his holy, pure, white robes and he held it out to you. Take it, he says. You can now wear my righteousness as if it belonged to you all along. And he he picked up your robe that you wore, stained with your pride, stained with your ego, stained with your sexual sin, your rebellion, your lies, your conceit. He picks up your garments, stained with your bitterness, stained with your unforgiveness. It stunk of your pride. And he put it on his back and he wore it as if it belonged to him. And he wore it all the way to the cross. And he received the punishment as if the garment he wore was his. We who once were enemies of God and belonged to hell are now his people who belong totally to him. And we who once were clothed in filth are now clothed in holy garments. And so they offer themselves freely on the day of his power. Why do we offer ourselves freely on the day of his power? Because he offered himself freely for me in my deepest, darkest place. He came and offered himself freely for me. It's my joy to give my life fully to Jesus because Jesus gave his life fully to me. I love because he first loved me. The fuel of the kingdom is not self-righteousness. The fuel of the kingdom is not a works-based gospel. The fuel of the kingdom is agape love, selfless love. And when you've encountered that agape love, you offer yourself freely. How can I not offer myself freely to you, Jesus? You've been way too good to me. My love for him drives me to submission. His kindness, his kindness by God led me to repentance. His grace led me to obedience. His gift of love causes me to say yes, yes, whatever you need, yes. I do not serve Jesus today out of a fear of punishment. I don't serve Jesus today out of fear. If I do something stupid, I'll go to hell. I've already escaped punishment on the cross of Calvary. Punishment has been dealt with. I don't serve Jesus because I'm scared of God, scared of the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been absorbed on the cross. His love is aimed perfectly at me. I'm bathed in the favor of God. I don't serve God out of fear of punishment. I don't serve God. I don't serve Jesus this morning out of a desire to earn some religious badge. I don't want you to think of me as hyper-spiritual. I don't serve God to earn your favor. I don't serve God to try to earn God's favor. I have God's favor. Perfectly. Totally. I can't do anything to make him love me more. He already loves me perfectly and totally. He's bathed. He's lavished his great love and affection on me in Christ Jesus. I stand today lavished in the love of God. I can't earn any more love. I have it all. I don't serve God because I want to earn his love. I don't serve God because I want to please people. If you serve God, if you come to church, if you volunteer because you want to please somebody else, you'll quit sooner or later. I don't serve God out of compulsion. That I feel like it's my great responsibility or fear. I'm not religiously motivated. I serve Jesus freely and gladly because I can't help but love him. By God, I can't help it. 
He's been way too good to me. He's too beautiful and too wonderful. I don't serve Jesus because I have have to in order to prove myself worthy. I serve Jesus because I get to. It really is, and I mean this with all my heart. It's the greatest honor, joy, pleasure of my life to serve Jesus. The greatest joy. Of course, as people offer themselves freely. They don't offer themselves because they've been conquered with the strong arm of a military leader. They don't offer themselves because they think if they come and fall at his face, maybe they'll have he'll have mercy on them. They offer themselves freely because they have a revelation of the gospel of Jesus and his great holy love for us. They offer themselves freely because the blood that was shed on Calvary has totally messed them up. So I want to say to you this morning that the people of Messiah offer themselves freely on the day of his power because Jesus is too good to deny. So most suggest that the phrase, the day of your power, refers either to the day of Pentecost or to the day of his return. Most saying that both are, both are true, both are in perspective. So on the day of his power, when the spirit of the Lord was poured out on humanity in Acts chapter 2, when they received the promised baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember, John says, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We often glaze over that idea of spirit baptism, but I want you to know that the early apostles did not glaze over that idea. They sat their butts in Jerusalem in an upper room and prayed until they were, until they were bathed in the power of the Spirit. In the upper room, God anointed them with the Holy Spirit. Priests, prophets, kings, they were all anointed with oil to signify the presence of God on their life to perform a specific function. Now, everybody in the upper room was anointed with the presence of the Holy Spirit to signify their authority to operate in the function of gospel proclaimers. And on that day, they offered themselves freely. They became his mouthpiece. They became his hands and his feet. Men once plagued with ego now stand up and proclaim a gospel that seems foolish and they're willing to look like fools for the sake of Jesus. Men once plagued with selfishness and they now serve the orphan and the widow. Men once gripped with greed, building their own kingdoms, now sell their land to give to the poor. Men who once lived entirely to try to build up their own persona. They now bow before Jesus, preach the gospel of foolishness to the world in order to build up Jesus's kingdom to exalt his persona. They will become the outcasts of the world. They will become the fools, the scum of the earth. Freely, gladly, with joy, with joy, they become the scum of the earth. Isaiah 6, 8, you remember this moment where Isaiah is caught up in the throne room. It says, Isaiah writes, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and where and, and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And that's the cry of the people of Messiah. You know, when you're a kid and your parents say, can somebody take out the trash? And everybody looks around like, who's going to do that? It's the exact opposite in the kingdom. Jesus says, who will go? And everyone says, me, I would love to do that for you. That would be wonderful. Send me. That's the cry of the kingdom. David said that's what future Messiah's kingdom will be like. And the last line, we'll spend a few minutes on. 
From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, in my study Bible, um, it says this. The meaning of this Hebrew is unknown, which is really, really helpful. Study Bible. I don't know what I paid for you for, if that's what you got for me. The NIV translates this phrase. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. That's the way that Calvin understood um, this phrase. And, and the idea that I think is most compelling. Most commentators believe it's what the phrase meant. The idea is that as the morning grass, when you wake up in the morning and the morning grass is covered with dew, with little drops of water everywhere, they cover everything you see. It's a sign of refreshment and nourishment to the soil. That's what the workers of Messiah's kingdom will be like. They are a multitude that can't be counted. They will cover the earth. They bring refreshment and nourishment to the land. The Messiah's people will be immeasurable. They will be full of hope. They'll cover the ground of the nations. In lands that have been plagued with depression, they will carry joy that is heavenly. They will serve the poor rather than oppress the poor. They'll care for the orphan, love and cherish the widow. They will establish justice and righteousness. In a humanity that's plagued with ego, they will come with humility. They are kind. They are full of life, marked by selflessness. And the earth is dry and cracking and tired, thirsty, famished. It's longing, in Paul's words, it's longing for the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. The earth has known famine. It's tired, dry, and we come to replenish it with the joy of the gospel, with the peace of Messiah, with righteousness and with justice. The the Messiah's young men, his servants, his young men and women, his little soldiers will come and they will be nourishment to the lands. Hallelujah. So in conclusion, I'll wrap up for you. On the day of his power, a great number of people, like the dew of the land, they can't be numbered. They'll come with renewal, with joy, with hope. They will be dressed in holy garments, cleansed. They come and they offer themselves freely to his service. And his gospel, like a scepter, will be held out over the nations as an as a icon, a token of his majesty and his truth. And his people offer themselves freely because they understand what he has done for us. His people will serve faithfully with joy because they realize that he is the ultimate servant of all. The one who came not to be served, but to serve. When God puts on flesh, gets down on his hands and knees and washes the dirty feet of sinners when you come to that revelation that on the cross, he bore all of my sexual sin, all of my lust. He bore all of my greed on the cross. He wore my, my pride and, and my worst, gr grossest moments. He wore it as if it was his own because he loved me. When you come to that revelation, when you're, the eyes of your heart are open to that truth, all you can say is yes, yes. Freely, freely I offer myself to you today, yes. Messiah's people are not a people who are religious or stiff 
They're not manipulated into service. They don't serve under compulsion. Messiah's people are not like the cults who say, if you don't do enough good, then you're not going to make it to heaven. Messiah, we, we already belong to heaven. Of course I'm going to make it to heaven. And by God, heaven's coming in me. Uh, it's, not, it's not a gospel of works. It's a gospel of thanksgiving for what Jesus has done. It's a gospel of joy because you know that you didn't deserve it, man. It's a gospel of hope because he's promised future restoration. We offer ourselves freely because the eyes of our hearts have, have caught a glimpse of how good this Messiah is. Our founding fathers understood that monarchy was an awful form of government because all men are crooked. And there would have to be a diversification of power, checks and balances, in order to slow down the evil momentum of man. We learn today that democracy is not perfect either because people are still evil and easily deceived and the masses can just as quickly turn towards evil. But if the king is perfectly holy, and if the king is not tainted with sin like you and I, and if the king is not filled with ego, but is humble, even more humble than you could ever imagine, if the king is so humble that he would leave his throne, be born in a manger, wash men's feet, die a cruel death, allow men to spit in his face if he's that humble, if the king is kind, if the king is willing to give of his own life in order to save others, if the king is actually not a monarch that rules from the top down, but he's the servant of all, the ultimate servant, then monarchy is beautiful and wonderful. And you would come to that king and say, please rule over me. You are just and you are good and you are kind. When the king is perfectly righteous, when the king is the very essence of selfless love, then the people will offer themselves freely. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.